Welcome back to another episode of the Max Term Podcast. Kyle Stitch here alongside James Finch, and today we are going to be talking about how the arbitration process works in the NHL. Give a little bit of insight into the behind the scenes, give a couple examples, and kind of talk through some of the bigger names and where we expect them to ultimately settle if their cases do reach that point of uh, actually going to an arbitration hearing. So if you uh, are interested in our work, we appreciate you subscribing to this podcast, Max Term Pod, on all major platforms. We also have a YouTube channel, Max Term Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Max Term Pod. We generally post kind of contract analysis and other analysis at AFP Analytics. And at the AFP Analytics account, you can find uh, our personal accounts as well. Any questions, any thoughts, feel free to uh, direct them to us. We are happy to answer the best we can, as well as any ads or anything you might hear associated with this podcast are not necessarily products that James or I are endorsing, and we're going to try and give you a look behind the scenes the best we can, but there are some sensitive things that we can't 100% share because of uh, confidentiality that we've been trusted with, but uh we have some pretty good insight. I've, I work with agents uh, occasionally helping prepare for basically arbitration hearings. So I've sat down and talked through kind of their thoughts, uh, work with people who, who have experience doing it, hear lots of stories. And the purpose of this episode is to kind of relay as much information as we can to kind of how the sausage is made. The arbitration process is not something that really either the team or the player want to go through. So what's ultimately probably going to happen is most of the cases, there's a, there were 22 players to file, a couple have already signed, and some more will con- probably continue to sign. Players and teams really don't want to get to that part. Why don't they want to get to the part is because arbitration is basically laying everything out on the table and trying to make the other side look as bad as possible. So if you're a player and you have a team preparing this case, presenting it in front of the audience who's a neutral arbitrator, and then there's representatives from the team, the league offices, on the team side and then on the player side, it's usually the player, their agents, potentially some NHL Players Association representatives, and it's just laid out in a room. And then the neutral arbitrator takes all the information that's been presented to them and comes to a decision. So the team's job in this is to get their player back on their team for as low of a cost as possible. In order to do that, you want to make your player look bad. Think in the past couple cases that have actually went to arbitration, there are very few players that stayed with their team much beyond kind of a year or two removed from that arbitration case because there were just bad feelings all around. So I'm thinking P.K. Subban as the big example. Montreal just came in and hammered him. And I don't think the relationship ever kind of recovered and ultimately was traded one for one for Shea Weber uh, in Nashville. Also remember that same day, one for one at Adam Larson for Taylor Hall. Thanks, Bob McKenzie. (laughs) So, and then the, the 
players are also basically putting the team down as well. Oh, you can't build a team. You can't build an organization. You need to have this player because they're driving. They're making your team go. So the GM's not kind of gets ego checked by the player side. No one's going to be happy if they're actually sitting in that room, hammering it out, and anything along those lines. So all the play, all the dates are set for the arbitration cases, so we know when everyone's scheduled to kind of have their hearing. So the players and teams will uh, are have been probably working already on preparing their arbitration cases. So both sides are trying to find players that they can point to that basically make their argument as strong as possible. So generally what that means is teams are looking for players that performed similarly but got paid less or at least less than they would like to give to this player that they're going up against. The players looking for players that they basically outperformed, play, played similarly to, and are getting paid more. And we'll give you a, let's start with an example at this point so we can kind of lay the groundwork for how team, how player might kind of come into the arbitration hearing. So we're going to start with one that, we're going to kind of use one of the bigger names that might be going to arbitration. Jeremy Swayman, and really the same applies to Ilya Samsonov too. They're they're not the exact same goalie, but as far as building an arbitration case goes, the case is going to be built in a very similar manner. Yeah, so the big thing here, like you said, is there's going to be some comparable players that the team uh, very much prefers to talk about, and then some comparable players that the uh, player representation, the agents will come in with. And um, they are all comparable players for a reason, but some are more favorable depending on the side you're on. And so someone like Swayman, um, his representation is probably going to come into the room and say, well, he's a lot like Sergei Bobrovsky in Columbus. Um, there was a two-year deal signed uh, for $5.625 million. That was the cap hit. Um, that's going to be one of the higher comps for someone like Swayman. So that's a, a good comparable from the agent side. Moving to the team side, they want the uh, deal to be as low as possible. So they're going to come in with guys like Elvis Merzlikens, Jonathan Bernier, um, so Merzlikens was at 4, Bernier was a bit lower at 2.9, Corpusalo can be thrown in there as well at 2.8. Um, so those are some low comparables, and at the end of the day, something's going to be decided. Contract value somewhere in between there maybe, and uh, a good comparable that we think he would end up around would be Jordan Binnington right after the, the cup run he had on two years that was a 4.4 cap hit so i think i think it's pretty clear that there i mean if if you're thinking about jeremy swayman opposed to some of the names that james just kind of talked about i i don't know you as a listener is probably like oh well he's definitely cl closer to bob roski he probably is going to get in that five million five and a half million dollar range 
So if you've listened to some of our other episodes, you hear us usually focus on cap hit percentage because the cap generally rises over time. This episode, you heard us lay out actual cap hit numbers, like Bobrovsky's 5.6 million and some change. In arbitration, they are looking at strictly the cap hit number. And what you're going to learn is the arbitration process in the NHL in particular is really stuck behind the times. Things haven't really moved forward, really haven't progressed as far as kind of cases, what's presented, stuff like that. So because the NHL and the Players Association have basically continued to use the actual cap hits, generally the comparisons that are brought up in these negotiations are one are contracts that have been signed in just the past couple years. So the fact that the cap has kind of not risen a ton because of the pandemic and decreased revenues and stuff, it probably opens up the sample size a little bit more because realistically in the past like four years, the cap's risen maybe like $4 million. So that's not a huge stretch to be using guys from that time period. But like Jonathan Bernier, what year was he, uh, what year did he sign his contract in? Uh, looks like that's a 2015. So, Jonathan Bernie's contract is, even though he might be a good comp because he kind of came into the league as a young player by storm, because they're focusing on actual cap hit and the cap's risen significantly since 2015, Bernie is going to get thrown out, he's not going to be used in the arbitration case. That doesn't mean that if they're doing negotiations on the side, he's not necessarily used. But as they walk into that room to present their case, Jonathan Bernier's contract's just too old. The agents are going to throw that out, say, oh, the game's changed, the cap's changed, it's not even relevant. And there goes one, one basically team-favorable player. So astute listeners might also be thinking, oh, Sergei Bobrovsky's deal was also a long time ago. Well, the fact that it's really still on the very high end, the agents are still going to bring that in because that's what they're striving to get for their client. So even though it, it took place a while ago, it's not like contracts have necessarily surpassed that. Sure, the league might try and discredit that as, oh, it was too long ago, goalies don't get paid the same anymore. But the reality is, is the reason that goalies aren't getting the same type of contracts is because Swayman and Samsonov are kind of at a unique age with a high level of performance that few goalies are really kind of perf- kind of hitting. So throwing out that Bobrovsky deal, the league might try and do it, but I have a hard time thinking a neutral arbitrator is going to buy that case that it's no longer comparable because it's too high or too long ago. I think the Bernier case, though, throwing that one out, it makes a lot more sense because, oh, a lot of the other contracts have risen over time for players at a similar age and performance level. So what's really important here is is understanding kind of the age and the contracts that can come into play. So an arbitration ruling can be for one or two years. So all the contracts that um, we were kind of talking about fit in that range. 
there might be a chance that an agent or or team tries and spends like a three year contract as a comparable as like oh this cap hit works but it's going to be a lot tougher of a case to make because it's buying an extra year that arbitration isn't necessarily isn't allowed to award so the arbitrator has to take all those comps into play and come up with a number that they think is fair value based on the case that has been been presented to them. So what type of information is presented to the arbitrator in this case? Well, again, I already mentioned, arbitration is still pretty backwards. You are bringing up basically box score numbers and other publicly available information. I won't say which goalie, but I had heard uh, some years ago about someone trying to bring in advanced shot analysis, analytics, etc. into the arbitration case. And I was told that uh, eyes glossed over it, did not go over well, and might have cost the the goalie ultimately some money because the case kind of didn't fall in line with other cases that had been presented, people didn't necessarily know what was being talked about. So really, we stick to just the basic box score numbers as far as presenting a case. And if you can make a level of argument to include maybe a few other things, it's possible. But there's even uh, basically agreement between the Players Association and the league that they can't bring in this new tracking data. That was one of the things the players were adamant about when they approved kind of wearing like the devices and stuff like that is the, is the data can't be used against them. And this would be a prime example of when the data would be used against them. So goalies, really it's going to be come down to wins, save percentage, goals against average. That's what it's really going to come down to. So Jeremy Swayman and Ilya Samsonov are going to do very, very well because those are the kind of the cases that can be made. And both had tremendous seasons, especially when it comes to just racking up wins. Boston's probably going to use the fact that Linus Allmark also did really well on that team as kind of a case against why Swayman maybe doesn't deserve as much because, oh, any goalie who, you know, had... Allmark wasn't a bad goalie, but he wasn't a Venza, basically, finalist before. So they can say, oh, well, he just played behind a really good team, a really good system. Where that's not going to fly so well is Ilya Samsonov was definitely the Leafs' best goalie this past season. So the Leafs coming in and saying, oh, yeah, well, it's our team, it's our system, why he had those numbers. Well, then the the, the basically the pushback from the player side is going to be, well, then why isn't Matt Murray like your number one goalie? Or why, why aren't you just rolling with your AHL guy, Joseph Wall? So there's slightly different cases to me made because of that. But ultimately, the two goalies are probably going to fall if it gets to all the way to the arbitration hearing, are probably going to fall very similarly. What's interesting is Samsonov's hearing is before Swayman. So if Samsonov gets a good award or a good deal... Swayman's even happier because he's definitely going, he's got a very strong case, at least in our opinion, to come in higher than Samsonov. So Samsonov's probably setting the floor for the two of them. 
So I, I've been talking a lot about if it gets to arbitration and then the actual hearing and stuff. So teams and players are able to negotiate any sort of contract up until the hearing basically takes place. The minute a, a word is spoken in the hearing, though, they have to abide by whatever the arbitration award is. There is a caveat here. If the award's over X dollars, for this year, that threshold is set at $4.5 million and a little change. So if Samson offers Swayman were to receive an award of $4.6 million, the team in theory could say, thanks, but no thanks, we're not going to pay you that. And then either of those goalies, whichever team walked away, would become unrestricted free agents able to sign with any team on the open market. I don't think they can necessarily go back to their own team because that would be some cap circumvention, but they but they would be able to sign anywhere else they desire. So again, once the arbitration hearing starts, the player and team are bound by the arbitrator's award, their ruling, if you will. Anytime up until the case starts, though, the player and team can sign any type of contract they want. They can sign just a one-year deal or a two-year deal, which the player would be eligible to receive as an arbitration award, or they can sign even up to an eight-year contract. It's going to be rare that something like that's going to happen if it kind of gets the closer the hearing gets, but, but it is still possible. What's important to note, though, is once these players were finalized as player-elected arbitrations, they are only able to negotiate with the team that they're currently with. So no more offer sheets for any of these guys. It's just the team and the player trying to hammer out a deal. And if a deal isn't hammered out, they go to arbitration. So if the team and the player are unable to come to necessarily an agreement before that arbitration hearing starts, they go and present their case to the neutral arbitrator, arguing for their side. But unlike baseball, where they just have to prove that they're a little bit better than what's called a midpoint, basically the average between the team's offer and the player's offer, which in this in the NHL situation will be exchanged 48 hours in advance. So basically two days before the hearing set to take place, the team and player will know where, where each other basically sits. So in the NHL arbitration, the arbitrator can award, there's a couple other caveats, but generally speaking, they can award anywhere between what the team offers and the player's ask is for. Well, again, the NHL arbitration process is stuck behind the times, and the arbitrator usually just splits the difference because realistically a lot of these arguments that you're making, there is a strong, a strong argument to be made that this high-paid player is actually worse than the player we're arguing for, but this also low, low player is actually better than the player being argued over. So oftentimes the neutral arbitrator just splits the difference comes in right at the middle. So to kind of illustrate how this would play out and what the award probably is going to end up being, we're going to look at Vince Dunn a little bit with some high, low, and then talk about where he's probably going to fall. Yeah, so when we're looking at Vince Dunn, um, when his player reps go into the room, they're going to be 
tossing out Darnell Nurse as an example of, of a pretty good comp uh, at 5.6 million. Um, Justin Schultz could be another one at 5.5. Um, on the low end, the team, they're going to be looking at players like Travis Sanheim at 4.6, and maybe even a bit lower, possibly a Brandon Montour at 3.85. Um, and like you said, a midpoint here that would make a lot of sense is Ryan Pulak for the Islanders at $5 million. So basically, arbitrator is going to see, oh, 5.6, 4.6, 3.8. Oh, let's just basically find, let's split the difference, which is right around $5 million. And that's what the arbitrator gives because chances are a case can be made that Vince Dunn is not as good as maybe Brandon Montour or Travis Sanheim, but he is better than Darnell Nurse or Justin Schultz. So what ultimately happens? Oh, settle on the guy right in the middle. Whether that's even brought into the argument or not, in this situation, there's actually a really good comp in the middle in Ryan Pollock, so it would make sense to tie it to them, but a lot of times, there's not even necessarily a comp. It's just, oh, let's let's split the difference. So, so most of the time, it's going to be just box score stats, maybe a few other things that drive kind of these arbitration awards. But arbitration is still presenting a strong argument, a strong case to a neutral observer who chances are doesn't even know a ton about the sport of hockey. I actually know someone who has been an arbitrator and they did not necessarily know the sport that they were arbitrating. They're not like diving into all the stats and stuff like that. They're strictly looking and considering the case that has been presented to them. So one player that's going to present a case that might kind of deviate from just presenting the box score numbers is Gabe Velarde with now the Winnipeg Jets. So Gabe Velarde was acquired this offseason by the Jets when they sent Pierre-Luc Dubois to the Kings. So if I'm working with Gabe Velarde's representation, the Players Association, I'm making an argument that well, Vlardy was the centerpiece in this Dubois trade, and Dubois uh, being paid like a first-line center, we can argue if he is or isn't, but fact of the matter is L.A. paid him like one. So as the centerpiece for you know a cornerstone franchise player, the Jets obviously value Vlardy, so the agent and the other representatives working for on the player's side are going to try to hammer that point home that, okay, all these comps are good on paper as bo for box score numbers, but because the Jets obviously covet this player, they probably see something additional in Velarde that he actually deserves to get paid a little bit more than maybe the numbers are dictating. And, and it's again, it's really all about just building that strong argument. So our projection for Velarde came in at three years, 3.7 million. So 
it, it's not a perfect uh, kind of projection for an arbitration award because, again, arbitration awards can't be more than two million two years. So, so it might our kind of AV our cap hit number might be a little bit high because of that extra year, but. Velarde's representatives are going to be arguing, well, he deserves more than we're expected. So maybe they're going to be pushing for $4 million a year, just using kind of our projection as still a baseline. Maybe they're going to be pushing for $4 million a year, and maybe it might have a little bit more luck doing so because he was the centerpiece in this trade. So him, him basically being traded for a cornerstone player shifts leverage to him. So I would be absolutely shocked if the Jets went all the way to arbitration and can't work out a deal with Velarde because you traded for the player. How are you really going to build a case against him? You don't even know him that well outside of, you know, what his box num box score numbers say. So you can't kind of bring in other like intangible things in the argument and stuff like that. So chances are that contract gets settled before the hearing starts. So regardless if if it gets settled before the hearing starts or the hearing actually happens and an award is given, players electing to go to arbitration do provide teams with a second buyout window in the offseason. So the first buyout window is closed. So any team that doesn't that didn't have a player going to arbitration can no longer buy another a player out. But teams that do have players who filed for arbitration, whether or not the hearing actually happens, are going to get another buyout window. So there's been some speculation out there that maybe the Leafs and Samsonov kind of have a deal agreed to, but they're they're playing a waiting game here to see if they can figure out something for Matt Murray instead of going the buyout route, but if, if kind of the clock runs out, maybe they'll they'll agree to the contract, they won't go to the arbitration hearing, and then they'll have up to 48 hours to place Matt Murray on waivers for the purposes of the buyout. The same thing was kind of speculated with Pittsburgh, potentially with Drew O'Connor. Maybe they might try and buy out, you know, Mikhail Granlund there. But it is important to, to note that it's from when the contract is signed, 48 hours, once once kind of the player elected for arbitration. So not every team's going to have another buyout window, and the teams that are getting them only have a small window after the arbitration award is has been has come down or the contract has been signed. And the only players eligible for this buyout are players with cap hits of at least $4 million. So you can't buy out a lower level player. It's got to be someone with a, with a higher cap hit, which is where Matt Murray comes in, which is where Mikel Gramlin comes in. Speaking to that, um, that's fairly important for a team like the New York Rangers. It doesn't quite fit as an example right now because Lafreniere is not arbitration eligible. But just for the purposes of this, let's say he was um Barclay Goudreau has been someone that has been mentioned as if New York needed to free some space could he be traded I wouldn't buy him out I think he's too good of a player to buy him out 
but he's only making 3.6. So if they were to have had a second window, Goudreau would not have fit what um, is required. Yeah, I think I think Goudreau's an interesting name to kind of just talk about real quickly because the way his contract is structured, um, he actually would provide a cap credit. So if a team, the Rangers or any other team, had bought him out, they would they would uh, be without his cap hit and actually receive additional for a couple years. So that could be really attractive for a team to acquire that contract and who does have an arbitration case and potentially buy it out if in that second window. But again, they can't do that because his, his cap hit is under that $4 million threshold. So that's kind of the best look in a, in a reasonable length of time. I don't think anyone wants to sit here for tons of time listening to uh, stories or uh, kind of backstories to arbitration. So if you have any like specific questions or anything, though, further related to it, you're always welcome to reach out to us on Twitter at AFP Analytics, where you can also find either of our personal accounts at MaxTermPod. Again, we we really appreciate you listening, subscribing to this podcast on any of the major platforms you might consume it on. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.